Today, we will look at Acts 19, verses 1 to 20. I'll begin by reading verses 17 to 20, and then ask God's blessing. So zoom in with me to Acts 19, verse 17. The Bible says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. God, please, by the power of the Spirit, illuminate this inspired text to our hearts. May we believe it, and may it remind us more of you. Save the lost, edify your people, and as we just sang, glorify your name in all the earth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now I know that for the large majority, if not all of us here, we already know that. That's not a surprise. It's not scandalous. We know the gospel is the power of God, but I want to press this point home to you and me this morning. Do you believe that? Have you forgotten that? Has your memory grown cold? Do you apply to yourself, do I apply to myself the power of the gospel each and every day? Or do we convince ourselves that the gospel is simply something we believed five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, and now we've moved on? When we look at a text like this, we cannot help but see the power of the gospel. And the gospel here is coming to the city of Ephesus. I want to remind you what the gospel did to those who received it in that city. So if you keep your place in Acts 19, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Just as a quick sort of commercial break. In Ephesians 1, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, which is the very church that is founded in today's text in Acts 19. And just look at what he says to them about the power of the gospel in their lives. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, there's the power of the gospel. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, 
The forgiveness of our trespasses, the power of the gospel, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11 tells us we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13 tells us we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is amazing, brothers and sisters. No matter what it is you might be facing today, if you're a believer in Christ, what Paul wrote to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago applies to you now. By the power of the gospel, you are seated in heavenly places. By the power of the gospel, God has made known to you the mystery of his will. By the power of the gospel, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. By the power of the gospel, your sins are forgiven. By the power of the gospel, you've obtained an inheritance in heaven waiting for you. By the power of the gospel, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it was this gospel, back in our text now, In Acts chapter 19, that comes to town. And when the gospel comes to town, it totally makes an impact. Don't underestimate this, my brothers and sisters. Don't forget, no matter how far in your Christian life you are, no matter how much theology you've memorized, how much Greek and Hebrew you know, how much church history you understand, don't underestimate The power of the gospel. And before we dive into the text, let me just remind you what the gospel is in case you forgot. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ's salvation. According to 1 Corinthians 15, the main components of the gospel, which means good news, is that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. He died. What does that mean? Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect son of God who did no wrong, who who never sinned, who was tempted like you and me and and never failed, was nailed to a tree 2,000 years ago. Not because he was a sinner, for the wages of sin is death. Why did he die? If he's not a sinner, because he took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. That's the glory of the gospel. My sins laid upon Jesus Christ, his blood for my forgiveness. And because he lived a righteous life, God sees me as he sees his only son. God sees you as he sees his only son. As the song we sing says, God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. But Jesus didn't remain dead. The good news is that three days later, he did what no human being could do. He conquered our common enemy. Do you know that statistically, 10 out of 10 people die? We will all face death. Death is our common enemy, the great enemy. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Death is swallowed up in victory. Why? Because the Son of God rose from the grave. He rose triumphantly by the power of the Spirit of God. And that is good news because it signifies to us that Jesus is Lord. There are no other lords. There are no other gods. There is no other savior. And he's a perfect savior. He's a sufficient savior. He's been the savior all these years and he will always be the savior. 
If you come to him now, he won't say, I'm sorry, the last customer bought my last ounce of mercy. His mercy endures forever. The good news is though we deserve God's wrath, God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. And if we believe in him, we will be saved. That message, which we might grow tired of, we hear it Christmas and Easter, is the power of God and salvation. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul brings that message with him to the Ephesians, to the town of Ephesus. Now, that, the message had already gone forth. If you might remember in our previous uh, episode, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, and then he brought them with him to Ephesus, and he left them there, and he said, I'll, I'll come back if the Lord wills. So meanwhile, uh, Aquila and Priscilla are sort of taking care of these new believers in Ephesus, and there's a man named Apollos who is very mighty and very powerful in preaching, but they took him aside and explained the way more accurately. So Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla are sort of not elders, but they're managing the, the new believers, and then Paul comes back as he promised in Acts chapter 19. That is the gospel's work in Ephesus. So let me tell you just a little bit about Ephesus, because we have seen the gospel in the book of Acts in Jerusalem, right? In Antioch, in, in Corinth, in Athens. Over the next few weeks, I want to zoom in to Ephesus, because the book of Acts zooms into it. Ephesus was a, a capital and leading business center of the Roman province of Asia, which for our purposes now would be the country of Turkey, or what we call Asia Minor. Ephesus was one of the greatest cities on the Mediterranean. It was a cultural hub. They've uncovered, archaeologically, they uncovered a theater which seated 24,000 people. There was a famous temple in Ephesus dedicated to the goddess Artemis, which that temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So the point here is that Ephesus, unlike some of the other towns we've uh, experienced, is not an insignificant town. It's a very culturally savvy, important, politically and business-wise important and significant town, a well-known town, a strategic town for planting a church. And now we're here. Aquila and Priscilla are there. Apollos is going back now to Corinth. And this is our first sermon in sort of a, a sub-series. I thought about calling it a mini-series. That sounds like a, a TV show. I'm not really sure how to, how to name it. It's a series within a series. The series of the book of Acts. But about three messages in Ephesus. And today I want to focus on the power of the gospel when it comes to your city. The gospel changes minds, the gospel changes ways, and the gospel changes communities. Acts chapter 19, changed minds, verses 1 to 7. Read with me in verses 1 to 7. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This first section shows us 
that the gospel has the power to change people's minds. That is the way we think. It has the power to, to bring us to a better understanding of things. We saw that with Apollos, right? Apollos was preaching mightily. He knew 70%, 80% of the message, but his mind was open to be teachable. Well, in Acts 19, 1-7, Paul, he comes into acquaintance with some people who need their minds sharpened. Now, there, there's a theological debate here. Were these men saved and needed strengthening, or were they not saved at all? And there are commentators on, on both sides of this. Some say they were not saved because they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. And after Paul baptizes them, then they receive the Holy Spirit and they begin speaking in tongues, which in the book of Acts is typically a sign that someone came to faith. On the other hand, is the fact that they're referred to as disciples in verse 1. And Paul says, since you believe in verse 2. And so there's debate on both sides. And the answer from my perspective is, I don't know. I can see both points of view, but that's not the point that I want to drive home today. What I simply want to drive home is what they were believing was incomplete and perhaps even twisted. But by the preaching of the truth, they came into a full understanding of the gospel. They had an incomplete view. See, what's happening in, in the first century, it's sort of a transitional period. The last Old Testament prophet was technically John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was preaching repentance about the one who would come. He was testifying about the Lamb of God. But Christian baptism looks backwards to the cross and says that Jesus already has come. So for you and me, we don't, we don't understand this whole John's baptism thing because that's an Old Testament issue. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're baptized upon our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So this is kind of a, a foreign concept. But what do you do with all those disciples of John who were still walking around the Mediterranean, who were baptized with repentance, believing the Messiah is coming, or maybe did come, but they don't have a full understanding of who he is? They're in that sort of transitional period. So Paul is able to explain to them that Jesus is the one that John the Baptist was talking about. He has come, and the Holy Spirit has come as a promise by God through faith in Jesus. There's debate also in, in verse um, 2, where they said, we, don't, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Uh, the translation is probably misleading. It doesn't mean that they don't believe in the concept of the Holy Spirit, because in the Old Testament, it spoke of the Holy Spirit. It's simply they did not know that the Spirit of God had come. So Paul is saying, yes, God the Father has been pleased to send His Spirit upon all those who believe in Jesus. It's sort of like that aha moment that they experience when they are baptized in verse 5. And God confirms, these are my children, when they begin to speak in tongues and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. All the technical jargon aside, brothers and sisters, here's my point. The gospel has the power to change our minds. It could be our doctrine. Perhaps you've been a Christian long enough and you've grown in your understanding of doctrine and things start to make more sense to you. Uh, perhaps it's your perception, right? When you become a Christian and you receive the gospel, it changes your taste buds. You begin to see the world in a whole new way. The, the ugliness of sin. Sin should become more ugly to you. The sin that you once loved, you now see it as dangerous and poisonous. 
and righteousness, which might at one time have been boring or, or legalistic, or who wants to go to church, who wants to pray, now all of a sudden you're finding yourself in love with these things. Why? Because the gospel has the power to change your mind. Getting to a place then of having a sound mind is not a matter of five steps or twelve steps or whatever. It's reminding yourself of the gospel. That's where it begins. The things that we believe, our mindset, all must be founded upon the fact that God in Christ has bought me with His blood. And once I understand and apprehend the love of God for me in Christ, that my sins have been forgiven, then my mind can begin to change. But if you're wondering why it's hard for your mind to change, or maybe you're discipling someone or praying for someone and it's hard for their mind to change. And you're trying, if I just preach a little louder, if I just take this angle, before you do all of that strategic maneuvers, bring it back to the gospel. Because that is the power of God. The gospel has the power to change minds. Secondly, the gospel has the power to change our ways. Look at, look at me in verse 11 through 19. Change our ways. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the second thing we see here is that God doesn't just change minds, He changes ways. He changes our behaviors. Christianity is not merely an intellectual exercise. Where you used to believe these things, and now you believe these things. No, the things that you believe will then impact the way that you and I act. Our behaviors. We will begin to forsake certain things that don't honor God. And we will, we will pursue the things that do honor God. The gospel has the power to change our ways. In this passage, we find these sons of Eva itinerant Jewish exorcists. And there were many of these sort of exorcists and magicians and people trying to invoke power in those days. Nothing new under the sun. With the true apostles, there will always be false apostles. And this kind of reminds me of the instance of Elijah on Mount Carmel. You might remember that in 1 Kings where Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel and it's basically him versus the prophets of Baal. And they both try to invoke the name of their gods. Elijah invoking the name of, of Yahweh, Jehovah, the great God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. While as the prophets of Baal are trying to invoke Baal, 
to come down and, and to, to consume the sacrifice. And you might know the story as, as they're trying and praying and doing all sorts of different things to conjure up their God. Their God doesn't answer because their God is false. Their God is fake. They're frauds. They're, they're false prophets. And Elijah even engages in a little bit of mockery. He's like, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's resting. Maybe he's tired. Baal does not answer. But when Elijah invokes the name of Jehovah, God answers. And the prophets of Baal are destroyed. And we look at this passage here in Acts 19, and we see that there are these exorcists trying to invoke, it says in verse 13, the name of the Lord Jesus. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. The power that Paul has, I'm going to proclaim for myself so that I can get credit for casting out this demon. And what happens? The evil spirit says, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> who do you think you are? I have no idea. And then when, when Paul does it, well, actually, we see what happens to the evil spirit, right? He masters all of them, overpowers them, and they, they flee out of their house naked and wounded. It becomes known to all of the residents of Ephesus. And so you find here people trying to invoke power that's not their own, wielded unwisely. But, but what happens? Who gets the credit for what happens? Verse 17, the Lord Jesus was extolled. I read from the ESV. Extolled means held in high honor, held in high esteem. So when Jesus Christ is brought out as the one, not the sons of Sceva, but Jesus himself is the one who has the power to cast out demons, what is the response? The response is not, wow, that's pretty cool. I'll come back next week for the next show. It's not merely a fireworks display. When they see the power of Jesus Christ, their behavior changes. Verse 18 and 19. The believers come, they confess, they divulge their practices, they take their magical art books, they burn them in the fire. They're based, what is that? That's repentance, right? That's repentance from wicked ways. It isn't just Jesus is a spectacle. Let's see how many more demons will come out, right? This is, Jesus is warned. The message Paul was preaching is true. And I need to submit myself to his lordship. The gospel has the power to change our ways. I wonder, has the gospel changed your ways? Has it changed mine? Are there things that we can relate to in this passage where we have seen the power of Jesus, but we still sort of hold on to the sin that we love? Luke tells us that the... the the price of the books came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, count the cost, right? I remember as a teenager getting rid of my CD collection because they weren't edifying to me. All my hard rock CDs weren't, weren't bringing me closer to God. So getting rid of them, I don't know, maybe that was $200 worth of CDs? Not much. And that was hard for me as a teenager. But these men and women come forward and they're not only burning their magical books. These are, these are, it says they practice magical arts. So these weren't just books they had on their shelf as an interest, right? These were magicians. These were people who were delving into demonic and spiritual things that were against God. And they had no problem coming forward and just burning it. 
doing away with it. doesn't matter how much it costs because the worth of following Christ far outweighs that which, with which they practiced prior. As Paul says, right, I have, I have considered Christ, knowing Christ exceeding above all the things that he was before Christ. It doesn't matter that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. All those things are nothing compared to following Jesus. And I wonder, are there things in your life or my life that need to be burned in the fire? Where we need to just forsake them because they don't honor the Lord. Because they go against His will. Because they're not edifying to us. not bring us closer to God. What was it that changed their ways? It was the gospel. Because once again, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation is not merely, I get to go to heaven when I die. But it's a continual renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give up those things that hold you back from serving God wholeheartedly. You can't serve God and hold on to your idols. You can't serve God and and serve your addictions, whether it be drugs or alcohol or pornography or laziness. You can't serve God and defraud your neighbor. You can't serve God. And hold on to these pet sins. You know that in the Psalms it said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't hear sinners. Because if God doesn't hear sinners, we're all in trouble. He's not listening to anything we say, right? We're all sinners. But the Bible is talking about, you have known sin in your life. You know that it's sin. You know it's destructive. And for one reason or another, you keep it in your heart anyway. And then you have the audacity to approach the throne of the Most High. And the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. Let the sinner forsake his ways. How am I going to do that? I can't do that in my own power. Pick, me, pick myself up on my own bootstraps. No, you can't. And that's the point. But through Christ, you can. And that's why we need to be reminded continually of the power of the gospel. The gospel changes minds. The gospel changes ways. And thirdly, the gospel changes our communities. It changes the community. Look again at verse 17. It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. When Luke says all, he doesn't necessarily mean every single citizen in Ephesus, but he means, generally speaking, what's happening with the Lord Jesus being extolled in Ephesus is going everywhere in town. Everyone knows about it. Now, maybe more people rejected it than received it, but nobody is left unchanged. Everyone in town has to come face to face with this gospel message. Either they receive Christ or they reject Christ. And then in verse 20, the last verse of our text today. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Luke is presenting to us a community that is about to change. A community that had a temple dedicated to Artemis. And we'll see that in the next passage. That's about to come face to face with the true God. Brothers and sisters... 
I want to encourage you, whether it's here in Carney or in your town, when the gospel comes to town, it makes an impact. Now you say, I, I don't see an impact. The school system is still teaching this, or the mayor is corrupt over here, or that corner over there is a lot of drugs being sold. What do you mean? What do you mean it's changing the town? We don't know how it's going to manifest, right? It may be that one soul is saved because of your gospel presence in your community, in your neighborhood, in your apartment building, in your subdivision. But do you realize that when one soul is saved, there's rejoicing in heaven? Oh, of course, we want to see our, our community turned upside down. We want to see Jesus is Lord everywhere. And that could happen. But we don't know what God's going to do in His timing. But God does change a community for His glory the way He sees fit everywhere the gospel goes. It may be that there's revival, or it may seem like the rest of the town doesn't care. But somewhere inside a little building, there's believers gathering, and angels are joining with us. And we are having, whether you see it or not, we are having a salt and light effect on our surrounding community. If the gospel is being preached, and if the gospel is being lived out on a day-to-day basis. And so what I see in Ephesus doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen to Carney or Belleville or Nutley. But it should be that which we strive for. And not with gimmicks. And not with fads. But with good old-fashioned preaching of the gospel. Because that is the power of God unto salvation. We want to see in our community exactly what it says at the end of verse 17. That the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. May that be said about our church. Before they say anything else about bread of life carny. May it be whatever they do. However weird they might be to us. That church holds Jesus in high honor. The name of the Lord Jesus. Let, let them associate us with Jesus. That could be the best compliment we get. They may call us all sorts of names. But let it be for the sake of the name of Jesus. No, not everybody in Ephesus was saved. But the church was making it loud and clear. Who is Lord? They were making it loud and clear that Jesus is Lord and Artemis is not. They were making it loud and clear that Jesus is King and Caesar is not. They were making it loud and clear that however magician over here, sons of Sceva over here, the power is in the name of the Lord Jesus alone. And we see, as we read earlier in the book of Ephesians, many did come to faith. And God did an amazing work in their lives. And I pray that God would use the power of the gospel to so thunder forth from this pulpit, but not here, just here, but outside these four walls. So that in our community, people would be faced with a decision. Do I follow the Lord Jesus, or do I continue to follow my sin? Do not underestimate the power of of the gospel. And I want to conclude with the section that I left out, verses 8 through 10, as I give the application. Do not only not underestimate the power of the gospel, don't underestimate the power of God's mission in this world. God is doing something, He's always doing something. We're not deists here. Deists are people who believe that there might have been a God that created the world, but he sort of sat back and just let the world do whatever it wants. Our God is intimately involved with his creation. He holds everything in the palm of his hands. 
He orders all things. He does everything according to his will. And he's on mission in this world to save his people from their sin. And we are blessed, if we are believers, to be a part of that mission. Don't underestimate that. Look at me in verses 8 to 10. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months, this is Paul, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some stubborn, uh, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, there's a lot packed in there. First, let me focus on verse 10. This continued for two years. What continued? What continued was Paul left the synagogue because people were so stubborn and they were criticizing the way. Notice Luke says the way. That, that's Christians. That was what they were known as in Ephesus at that time. They were known as the way. That might be a hat tip to what Jesus said in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so imagine coming to church or a synagogue every Sunday, every Sabbath, and you're preaching, and there's these people continuing to criticize you and mock you. And eventually Paul said, all right, I'm going to go somewhere else. So he found a place in verse 9, the hall of Tyrannus. I think we know a little bit about having to move, right? We're a church plant. We know what, we're not welcome here, or we found a better place over here. Well, the early church knew this very well. So they're out of the synagogue, and now they're renting a hall. I don't know if they're renting, what kind of deal they have. Commentators say that in the afternoon hours when it was very, very hot, people would leave their work and go to halls like this, and they would hear lectures on Greek philosophy and things like that. So somehow Paul was able to secure a time for himself to preach the gospel in what's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And he was there for, verse 10, two years. So two years on a regular basis with the disciples, every day, reasoning daily, Paul is preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, and he's doing so, so that, the end of verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, it might be easy to miss that, but there's a connection there between verse 10 of 19 and something we considered probably a couple months ago. Acts chapter 16. You might remember the Macedonian call. Why did God, or what happened when God told the disciples to go to Macedonia. Where were they on their way to? They were on their way to Asia, right? In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Remember that? A couple months ago. And we were thinking, why did God forbid them? I mean, they have the right motive, right? Go preach the gospel in Asia. And the Holy Spirit says no. The very next verse, verse 7, says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. For whatever reason, in God's infinite wisdom, he said to the disciples, don't go to Asia. Go to Macedonia. In, in our time, it would be don't go to Turkey. Go to Greece. Three chapters later, Paul might seem arbitrary. Might seem like bad luck. You know what? These Jews in the synagogue are not listening. I'm going to go to the hall of Tyrannus. Preaches every day for two years. And the Bible says, so that everyone in Asia 
heard the word of the Lord. You can't make this stuff up. God knows what he's doing. We just have to trust his timing. It could have said, God, there are, there are sinners in Asia who need you. God's got this. Just wait a few more chapters and everyone in Asia will hear the word of the Lord. And it's not arbitrary. Think, think about all that had to happen in order to get to that point. Because the disciples obeyed the Lord to not go to Asia, but go to Greece or Macedonia, they were able to establish a church in Philippi where Lydia and the, the jailer were saved. They established a church in Thessalonica. They established a church in Berea. Paul had the opportunity to preach the gospel in Athens of all places. Then they established a church in Corinth. And Corinth was where he met Aquila and Priscilla. And because he met Aquila and Priscilla, who just happened to be tent makers, so that Paul had a connection to them, he took them with him where? To Ephesus, which is on the coast of Turkey in Asia Minor. And he left Aquila and Priscilla there, who just happened to meet Apollos, who they were able to teach more accurately. And Apollos was going around persuading people in Ephesus that Jesus was the Christ. As Paul says later, I planted Apollos' water. So Apollos is watering all the seeds while Paul is gone. Paul comes back to Ephesus because God opens a way. And now there are already disciples there, primed and ready to be taught and instructed in the way of the Lord. So that when Paul comes to the school of Tyrannus for two years, and all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord, it's almost like, God, why would we ever doubt you? Man planned. But God orders his steps. And listen, I can't help but apply that to our current situation. So to, to up, update you on, on this and ask you to pray, and you know, some of you already know about this, and I want to tell you the reality of where we are as a church plant, and, and so you could brace yourself for perhaps another adventure in moving around, or asking God to open the windows of heaven and do something we cannot even imagine. But either way, whatever God does with us, that we would rest in his sovereignty. Because it may have made sense for them to go to Asia at the time, but they obeyed God. And you know what? From a human perspective, it makes sense to me, after all we've done here for the last three and a half years, that God would just give us this building, and we could renovate it, and we can make sure the radiators work and don't bang during the sermon, and we can paint this and that, and we can use that as a fellowship hall and a children's room, and we could use that as an office in a library. And man, I am dreaming. I'm sure some of you are too, right? And it could very well be that none of that happens. Are we okay with that? Are we able to trust in God's timing? There are some church plants. I was in a church plant not too long ago. What's an established church now. They were established in the 70s. And they had 13 locations before they came to their current place. This is only our third our church is growing. We have future goals. We are financially self-sustaining, which is very rare for church plants in this area. And this building looks like a future home. But here's where we're at. The ELCA, which owns this building, they want to sell the whole thing. We can't piecemeal. We can't say, hey, we'll buy the, the church. Someone else will buy the houses. Save us some money. No, nope. the whole thing has to go. And I thought, well, we'll have plenty of time because who's going to want to buy this so quickly? And it turns out there's an interested buyer 
We don't know how far they're going to get with this, but they are interested, and it happens to be the city of Kearney itself. And the city of Kearney, I don't know what they're going to do with it. Are they going to make it a museum? No, they're not going to make it a church. And three years ago, when I asked the city if we could rent from any one of their buildings, they said, no, we don't rent the church. So even if they did buy it, and we thought, okay, they'll buy it and use it Monday to Friday, and we'll use it on Sunday. No. If they buy it, we're out. Maybe they'll raise the whole thing. Flatten it. Put low-income housing. That might be something they want to do. I don't know. The ELCA did tell me that they would prefer that it's a church. So if we weren't able to come up with the money, maybe not all of it, but most of it, they might be willing to hear us, even if the city were to outbid us. But it becomes sort of a classic David and Goliath story. So when I first heard this, I want to be real with you, when I first heard this, it popped my bubble. I, I was disappointed. I thought, but Lord, you know, we were in KCA, we were at 93 Grand Avenue, now we're here, and look, the church, all in your timing, the church is growing. This can't be. But I do think God has worked on my heart. And this is not, not saying we shouldn't pray and do what we can to see God move and grant us this building. That's why you saw video cameras around here. We're working on a video to send out so, people, so we can raise funds. So, so make sure you smile. You know. uh, if you don't want to be on camera, by the way, please let me know. We can, we can make sure that you're not, not there. Um, but we do. We, we, are, we are talking to our friends. We're talking to our church members, uh, fellow churches, and, and network with us. And we are going to see. We're going to begin a building fund. We'll talk to you about this as a church, how much money we can put into a building fund and start adding to that building fund. And, and look, even if we don't get the building, now we have money in a building fund so we can perhaps rent somewhere that we couldn't rent before or something like that. We don't, we don't know. Um, but whatever happens... Here's what this passage in Acts 19 reminds me. Is that God will complete the mission through us. So do not give up. Paul's hope was not in the synagogue or the hall of Tyrannus. Our hope is not in 65 Oakwood Avenue or anywhere else. Our hope is not in the building. Our hope is not in our facilities. Our hope is in the Lord. And that sounds cliche, but it is not. Because it says nothing in the Bible about the power of God coming from anywhere else than the gospel. And we must not allow our current circumstance to discourage us. Because it doesn't take an ounce away from the gospel's power. So whether we meet here, or we find a smaller place, or we meet outside. Some of you are like, no, please no, not outside. We will preach the gospel. And God will complete the mission through us. So don't give up. When we came, we were convinced the Lord led us here, and he's not let us down. He has not let us down, brothers and sisters. Three and a half years, we've seen people saved. We've seen people baptized. You all have been a blessing. I have seen people on Sundays praying together after church, serving one another, going to each other's houses, making food for each other, helping each other with jobs and cars. And so we trust that God will, in his time, establish a Christ-centered gospel-preaching, mission-minded, disciple-making church in this community. But we have to ask, does it need to be this building? Who are we to tell God what to do? Does it need to be on our timing? Well, God, it's been four years, come on. Does it need to be in Carney proper? That one really hurts my heart. But maybe it's Belton. Maybe it's Harrison. 
Maybe it's Jersey City. I don't know. They thought Asia. God said Macedonia. I hope it's Carney, but I don't know. Here's the point. God is in charge, not us. And God knows what he's doing. And he has people in this area. And the gospel is mighty to save. And you and I are just vessels. And if we resign ourselves to simply be his vessels, then we can trust him with confidence. I'm sure that when the Holy Spirit told the disciples in Acts 16, no to Asia, it was a little disappointing, but the disciples obeyed him anyway. And I'm sure that when the obstinate people in the synagogue kept kept yelling at Paul and didn't listen to Paul, I'm sure it was discouraging. And I wonder what Paul was thinking when he was renting from the school of Tyrannus. Maybe he thought, well, this wasn't in my plans. But God had him there for two years. And it was through this seemingly unwelcomed, seemingly unexpected obstacle that God would see to it that the gospel made its way through every resident in Asia. So can God be trusted? Can God be trusted with His church? Is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? I hope your answer is yes. But I leave you with what I began. Have you forgotten this? Has your love of the gospel grown cold? Have you forgotten what God can do through the gospel? I pray that this inspired text would remind all of us from our own lives individually, for your family's lives, for the church's life, that God will be glorified as he works in us and through us in his timing, in his ways, and for his purposes. I look forward to one day, many years later, writing a story like this, instead of the gospel in Ephesus, the gospel incarnate, just to see what God will do. And through all of this, whatever God's timing, whatever his ways may be, I pray that you and I would trust the power of his mission, that we can rest in wherever and whenever he leads us, so that no matter what, the name of Jesus would be extolled, held high, made great in our community through this church for the glory of God. Amen.